Please turn in your Bibles with me to Matthew chapter 21. This evening, we'll be returning to Matthew, and I'm excited to report that we are coming into the home stretch of this book. If you're new or visiting, you don't know, but we've been in the book of Matthew for the last 17 years. Uh, So this is really a big moment for us. Um, We'll actually be working through and wrapping up Matthew over these next two months, and then after that, we will jump back into some of our final practices, as well as even wrap up those, kind of the end of an era, if you will, as God leads us into new things. So it's a pretty exciting time. Would you stand with me for the reading of God's Word? We'll pick up in verse 1 of Matthew chapter 21. As they approached Jerusalem and came to Bethpage on the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two disciples saying to them, go to the village ahead of you and at once you will find a donkey tied there with her colt by her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, say the Lord needs them and he will send them right away. This took place to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet. Say to daughter Zion, see your king comes to you gentle and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the fowl of a donkey. The disciples went and did as Jesus instructed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and placed their cloaks on them for Jesus to sit on. A very large crowd spread their cloaks on the road while others cut branches from the trees and they spread them on the road. The crowds that went ahead of him and those that followed him shouted, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. When Jesus entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred and they asked, who is this? The crowds answered, this is Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth in Galilee. Jesus entered the temple courts and drove out all who were buying and selling there. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the benches of those selling doves. It is written, he said to them, My house will be called a house of prayer, but you are making it into a den of robbers. The blind and the lame came to him at the temple and he healed them. But when the chief priests and the teachers of the law saw the wonderful things he did, the children shouting in the temple courts, Hosanna to the son of David, they were indignant. Do you hear what these children are saying, they asked. Yes, replied Jesus. Have you never read from the lips of children and infants, you, Lord, have called forth your praise? And he left them and went out of the city to Bethany, where he spent the night. This is God's word. Let me take a seat. Now, some of you may remember, hopefully you do, that when we last left off, Jesus and his disciples were on their way to Jerusalem. And this is where we pick up today. Now, it has to be said that in a wonderful bout of happenstance, last week, Tyler, our new lead pastor in coming, brought an incredible word on the final verses of our text today, but from the book of Mark, which made my job easier and harder. Thanks be to God. Now, this means we'll be spending less time unpacking the latter part of our text and more time connecting what he spoke about last week to what is famously called Jesus's triumphal entry. Now, normally we go line by line, but for time's sake tonight, and really for the purpose of what I think this text is after, we're gonna look at it more in story form tonight. And we're gonna jump right in, but for us to get, I think what Matthew is really after here, we need to understand a bit of the context and even some of the significant cues that are found in this text. So, even if history is not your thing, I'm gonna ask you to hang in there with me for at least just a little while on the front end of this. Can you handle it? Okay, well, you got to, so all right. You've got it in you, I believe in you. Okay, so our scene opens uh, with Jesus on the Mount of Olives. Now, both prophetically and historically, this is significant because it was prophesied hundreds of years prior that the priest king or the Messiah, the Meshiach, who was destined to bring all the nations to the God of David would stand on this mount meaning the stage is being set for this grand triumphal entry that would ring true and elicit a response from the Jewish hearers, as well as those who would see and participate in it. And I believe this is the key in really understanding our text tonight. For the last few chapters of Matthew, we're told that Jesus is heading to Jerusalem to do what? Does anyone know? To die. 
He's heading to Jerusalem to die. And yet, as we've walked with him on this journey, it has been clear that while the disciples believe he is, in fact, the Messiah, how they are interpreting what it means, what that means for them is really different than what Jesus has been saying to them the whole time. Remember that the disciples and all the Jewish people were at the time looking for their king. All their lives, they had read about this Messiah that Yahweh would provide and he would be the Lord of all nations. And that he, though lowly and humble, yes, uh, he would still overthrow the oppression and evil in the world around them. And just like us, <laughs> their world was very small. Their world existed of what they felt and experienced here and now. For the disciples and for those in the time of Jesus, this could only mean one thing. You see, Rome was oppressive and evil. Riots were not uncommon in the holy city, and Rome was in power. They were corrupt and ruling over and exploiting those that they governed. Even at the time of their entrance into Jerusalem, we know that Pilate was on his way too. Jesus coming in from the east on a donkey, Pilate from the west on a white horse. Two kingdoms so clearly divided in one place. Surely, they must have thought, Jesus and the disciples' ascent to Jerusalem was to overthrow the evil and oppression that they so profoundly felt and faced. So with that, let's talk a bit more about our text. It kind of comes in two parts, so hang with me. Our story starts out with Jesus having arrived in Jerusalem and with him asking his disciples to go and get him a donkey. A weird request, but hey, do it, man. Now, it's important to note that Jesus had just walked hundreds of miles to get to Jerusalem, and for the last mile and a half or two, he will ride on a donkey. This is about more than just rest in the old legs. The disciples go into town, and they get the donkey, as Jesus said, and in verse 4, we're told that this was to fulfill a prophecy from Zechariah chapter 9, that the king, the promised one, this Meshiach, would come in riding on a donkey. This is where the music begins to be queued up, the slow kind of, you know? This is a big moment. And as Jesus began to enter Jerusalem, we're told that the crowds threw their coats down and that the people cut branches from the trees. And before him, they ran and shouted, Hosanna or Hosanna, blessed they said, is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. And we're told that the whole city was stirred and asked, who is this? Now, this is an important moment because I'm about to mess up your ideal Palm Sunday scene here. This is gonna be traumatic for some of you, but you can do the work in therapy this week. <laughs> if you're like me, for all my life, you've probably read this this way, that look, finally, they're seeing he's the one. They're able to see the guy who's been healing and helping and calling out the Pharisees and the Sadducees. They must know this is the Messiah. And finally, I would think to myself, Jesus gets just a little glory but I'm sad to say that's not quite what's happening here. Now, certainly there were those who felt that way, who had that very real experience with him. But if we go back to a bit of our context and a few of these pieces in our story, they mean something very different than how they may read from our very American Easter Sunday point of view. Remember that the Jewish people were looking for a savior, for an actual deliverer who would take them away from the oppressive realities of Rome. And Yes, Jesus was that, but he was that on very different terms. Let me elaborate a little bit. Let's set the scene, if you will, against the backdrop of what the people would have likely been thinking. It was Passover, we're told from the scriptures, and the world would be coming to Jerusalem to celebrate and participate in this festival. The city that normally held 30,000 people would now host a hearty 180,000 people. And Jerusalem is not big, my friends. It is small and squishy. You feel smushed when you're in it, even now. Which means that the crowds surrounding Jesus would not have been small either. This I'm sure they thought, at least I would be thinking, this is the time to do it, Jesus. It's Passover. Everybody's here. The world is here. This is the time to make your stand. The symbol of the people laying down their coats is similar to that of how we lay out the red carpet, but it was also a sign that they would give anything else they had to him as well. Those during that day who knew the scriptures 
the scripture we would know as 2 Kings chapter 9, might have remembered that when one of Israel's famous kings of old was proclaimed king in defiance of an existing one, that his followers would spread their cloaks under his feet as a sign of loyalty. This is a symbol of fidelity to the leader of the people. And in the same way, they were determined to make a statement about what they thought was going on. The cut palm branches were a symbol not just of worship, but could have also been a symbol more likely of rebellion. In Jerusalem, raising the palm branches pointed back to the Maccabean revolt, and it was a defiant and wildly provocative symbol to Rome that they would no longer be under their rule. And as they shouted, Hosanna or Hosanna, they weren't just saying, God, save us as a statement of worship or a Hillsong tune we love to sing, but also as a battle cry for deliverance. In Luke, we're told that Jesus weeps over Jerusalem before he enters it. And it makes me wonder if he knew what they were thinking, what they were really hoping for, if he knew what kind of revolution they wanted. While they longed for him to be the leader of an anti-Rome insurrection, we read that he quietly makes his way through the town, the humble and lowly Jesus on his way to the cross. This God-man presenting himself as Messiah in Jerusalem, but subversively redefining it from every angle. Now, in part two, we read that Jesus, the prophet, heads straight for the temple, as we heard last week. And he starts to turn over tables as, yes, a statement of insurrection. This is a a moment of insurrection against the institution that did not resemble the kingdom of heaven that he came to usher in. This was another moment of misunderstanding, another moment where the Messiah shows us what the kingdom of God is really like. In verse 14, we read that the blind and the lame are healed that children were welcomed in and that the religious leaders of the day, those who actually knew the scriptures, were indignant at it. What a scene. You see, Jesus' first stop was to go to the heart of the institution, and it's there that he casts out a callous and false religion, one with limits and separations and weird expectations. Once again, flipping the people's understanding of who he was and what he came to do on its head the state, and the church. This is Israel's true king. In this moment, Jesus refuses to let Rome and the religious leaders of the day determine what matters or what counts. And he chastises what is antithetical to the kingdom of God, demonstrating that one greater than the temple, the truer temple, was here. Now, our text ends in verse 17, but in just a few verses down from there, we see Jesus again confirm that the kingdom of God was in fact here and that it would change the whole world. Amen. That is only if they had the faith or the eyes to see it. Faith, he says, even as small as a mustard seed. Now, after studying this all week and being wrecked by it completely, I kept thinking about the story by Hans Christian Andersen. Do we even know who he is anymore? No? Is he canceled? I don't know. Anyway, uh, this story of the emperor's new clothes, do you remember that? Some of you are thinking groove. Back that up. Think clothes. Yeah? Okay. The groove, though, is good. You know that little angel guy who goes, look what I can do, and he does the push-up with his one hand? Kills me. Kills me dead. I love it so much. Now, Emperor's new clothes. This story consists of a famous and powerful emperor who so radically believed these two swindling weavers that he ended up believing he was wearing invisible clothing and walked naked before all his people. By the way, let's talk about how weird that is to be a kid's story. That is just, anybody? I thought that was, anyway, I thought it was weird. (laughs) And even at a young age, I do remember thinking how weird it was that someone could so radically miss reality that they could be so caught up in their own ideal or worldview that it would take them to such a great place of humiliation and miss what was actually happening. And maybe it's ridiculous to compare these two stories, but maybe not. Desperate times, desperate ideals, desperate notions, desperate needs make us humans do crazy things. Often makes us blind even to the reality of life or the truer life that is happening in us and around us. 
And I think that's not so different than what we're seeing in our text today. While this story is probably a familiar one to most of us, it is one, at least in seeing it from a new angle, that is challenging. Because as much as I want to criticize and chastise the disciples and the crowds, I can see where they're coming from. The need for them was great. They were in a political and spiritual crisis, much like the one many of us find ourselves in today. They were looking for their out, a reprieve from the burdens they were carrying. Even the sins that were being committed against them, they were looking for some kind of help. They were rightfully asking Yahweh to come and to save them. They were looking for a revolution that would change not only their world, but the whole world. And yet the meaning we see Jesus attached to this moment, to his triumphal entry, is quite different from the meaning they were wanting to see in it. This isn't so foreign to us, is it? The question this text confronts is, what do we do when that's our reality too? When what Jesus is or isn't doing doesn't match what we think it should be when who he is conflicts with our perception of the kind of God we want him to be, or when he says or what he says directly contradicts what I feel is right. History shows us that humans are hardwired for the good life, for a life free from pain and evil and suffering. So there will always be a need for a Messiah. There will always be a need for saving. The question we have to grapple with is what will we do when the saving we long for doesn't come the way we expect it to? From experience, I want to say that I know what it is to render Jesus useless when we are only willing to see him on our terms. And I think that's the place we need to start. Israel, the crowds in Jerusalem, even the disciples expected Jesus to be this conquering king, expected him to look the way they thought he should, to conquer evil and overthrow Rome. And their expectations, I think, were good, maybe even right. But it was their expectation of how he was going to do it that got them in trouble. Rooted at the heart of the spiritual journey for every apprentice of Jesus is the practice or discipline of letting go. We talk about this all the time. This is critical to life in the kingdom. This practice of continually releasing control and at the same time choosing to trust this invisible God. This is the path that we take. And this principle or this reality affords us the ability to actually encounter the realities of the kingdom of God. But this doesn't come easily. And in fact, this can feel impossible at times, particularly in times of crisis. God, we need you to act now. We could say that today, couldn't we? God, we need you to intervene in this way. Like, I think it is right and good to have expectations of God. In fact, I'd say have them but expectations that have a predetermined outcome on our end will always lead to a disillusioned faith. And I really do want you to hear me here. This is not an indictment. This is a confession. Because I, by nature, like to tell God what should or shouldn't be happening. It is a huge weakness in my flesh. And I'd love to be cute about it, but it's too serious. I love to tell God how something should go, and I, I let that live in me at times. I have lived in the disillusionment of my own expectations while limiting God from exercising an even greater outcome. That has been my reality. And that's the point here. You see, this way of thinking, at times the disappointment many of us experience would give most of us enough reason to walk away from following Jesus altogether. But that is only if we didn't know the whole story. You see, we've had 20 other chapters leading up to this one that told us that things in the kingdom are often not as they seem. The witness of the gospels is that Jesus does the unexpected with the greatest good in mind. When we read about the friends who lowered their paralyzed friend before Jesus through the roof, we read that he forgives his sins and he heals him. 
we see that Jesus is never just after temporal relief, but after one that is eternal. Or when the storm rages and the disciples are freaking out in the boat and Jesus just snoring his life away, wakes up and he doesn't just give them peace from the storm, but he makes a statement about his ability to rule over evil, not just once, but for all time. And all the stories go on one after the other. You see, what is most wild to me about our text today is that Jesus is answering the cries of the city, the cry of the people. He was fulfilling in real time the long-awaited prophecy they were hoping to see. That day, riding into Jerusalem, Jesus answered all their prayers, and he said yes to their desires. Only he did so at the deepest level in ways they could not see or fully understand. And I get how that sounds. I really do. I think it's great. When I hear something like that, I'm actually really moved. Even when I hear myself, this is the third time I've heard myself say this today. And I'm like, wow, that is good. <laughs> but if I can be honest, in hard seasons, when that doesn't feel true, I struggle to believe that it is. This is the wrestle of the human condition. This is the tension of the faith journey so many of us find ourselves on. How we feel has a great impact on how we relate, and not just to the world, but to God himself. Often it isn't enough just to know something. We have to experience it. And that is no less true with the things of God. That's why the kingdom is so experiential. If you're not experiencing the kingdom, I wonder if you've experienced it at all. We need the experience, the encounter of the kingdom of God's presence, especially when we feel we need rescuing. So the question I want us to ask is, how do we do this? When we, like the people of the crowd or the disciples, the disciples waiting and watching for Jesus to make his move, what do we do when we feel disappointed? Maybe it's impolite to say that, but what do we do? How do we handle the disappointment we feel with God, with who he isn't, or who we can't see him to be, or when he doesn't show up the way we want him to? And how do we not just handle it, but how do we move through it in such a way where we are able to actually see this proclamation of the gospels, of this unexpected radical goodness that's coming towards us? How do we move into that deeper work of God, to the places where the kingdom is breaking in unexpectedly? How do we move beyond the surface desires that we cry out for and move to those deeper places within us, those deeper and truer aches of our souls? This is the question we need to answer. Psychologically speaking, disappointment happens when our expectations of something or someone doesn't match the outcome. It's a way in which sadness is experienced and expressed, and it usually looks something like this. It's a bit of a cycle. So it usually starts out with an expectation. That's where we kind of come into the mix. We have an idea of what we, how we want things to go, the timing of something, what we hope for, what we dream of. This is a good thing. We start with expectations, but when that expectation isn't met, even in small ways, we generally move to a place of frustration. And from frustration, as we sit and kind of go, wait a second, why isn't it working? What isn't happening? Why isn't it happening in the time frame? I thought we generally move to a place of confusion, and we start asking those why questions, what's happening? And by the way, this can happen at a micro or a macro level. From confusion, the human condition generally moves us to a place of grief or sadness or what psychologists call this depression space until we finally come to what they call acceptance, to accept what is as opposed to what we hope for. And we can look at something like this and go, ugh, yuck, you know, like absolutely not. What a joy. She's talking about disappointment tonight, you know, like what a bummer. And we can look at acceptance and go, it's not what I want. But we've all been there, that place where we have to accept what is. And I want to say to you tonight that this isn't bad, that all of these steps, for the most part, are necessary to move through if we're going to get to what Jesus is after in us. But acceptance, particularly for the disciple of Jesus, is not the end. 
You see, the crux of transformation, the threshold for spiritual maturity is determined by what we do after we accept what is versus what isn't. If you look back at the story and you read ahead just a few chapters, uh, you'll get the chance to see where the disciples actually get to this place, where they lose hope, where they are, we think, disappointment, disappointed. And we don't know how that lingered or how that intersected with them, but we do know that they held up in a room after the one that they thought would not only be their conquering king, but their savior had died, held up, all of them, scared maybe, grieving certainly. What did they think? They had just lost their friend, but I imagine there was more happening there. Remember, the disciples were human like us. How could they not feel disappointed? You know, they had followed him the whole way. They must have been thinking, I mean, if it were me, hello, I'd love to judge the disciples, but I'm like, right here, fangirl, you know, like, all right, Jesus, you got this, babe, you know, like, just get in there and do it. Hurrah, you know, like, here we are, we're in Jerusalem. Okay, not the time. All right, good, this is a good move that you made. You know what I'm saying? Like, okay, temple, let's get up, you know? And then it's like, Okay, not the time. I respect that. You know, and then we make our way to Gethsemane. Surely he's going to do it here. He's gearing up. He's on his knees. We're watching and we're waiting and we're praying. And the chief officials come and I'm going, all right, dude, now let them have it. Breathe on him. Let's fall. You know, and and he does actually. (laughs) So anyway, go read that. That was interesting. And they might have thought this is it. And then the guys get back up and that's not it. And they take him away. And as they watch from the corners and the little spaces that they they hide in, they find themselves in, they see him being flogged and beaten and whipped. And they've got to be thinking, get up. You know, it's like watching those Creed movies where you're like, get up, man. Have you all seen Creed? Anyway, I don't know what kind of woman I am, but I'm into them. Uh, So, but it's like this boxing, you know, when they're down, it's like, Jesus, get up. This is the time. When are you going to do it? We've seen you raise the dead. Lazarus just came out of a tomb. Let's go. Can you relate? When are you going to do the thing? I'm watching. We're waiting. This is it. We're in Jerusalem. This is the time. And they must have been flabbergasted as he carries the cross up to Golgotha. And they think he's got to do something. Aren't you going to do something? All the while missing that he's doing the very thing they've asked him to do. They were human. And we are very much like them in this arena. Jesus, do the thing in the ways that we want you to. And then he dies. And for three days, they hold up in this room, waiting and watching. Coming, I believe, probably a bit to the end of themselves. See, there's something familiar in the human story about coming to the end of yourself. Even all the way back to the garden, Adam and Eve at some point both had to get to a place of surrender. The surrender of ideals, of expectations, of wants, or control so that they could encounter the greater glory that was theirs in Yahweh. Moving through our disappointment in so many ways uproots in us our limited and human perspective and allows us to open-handedly receive the greater good that God is after We just miss it sometimes. We can't see it sometimes. And this, this act of receiving the greater good requires a great amount of faith, trust, which is one of the hardest things to do when you feel disappointed. Believing God for his greater good and outcome is a threshold for maturity in this spiritual life. And it's something that will have to be exercised over and over again. Learning to see beyond what you think is happening, what you perceive God to be doing beyond your perspective, not just for the sake of the greater good, but out of actual fidelity to Jesus and who he said he was, is the pathway to being transformed. Max Licato, one of my favorite authors, puts it this way, when our deepest desire is not the things of God or a favor from God, but God himself, we cross a threshold. The question we're left with to still ask and answer is, but how do we do this? How do we do this tonight? Some of you 
me, tonight find ourselves in places of disappointment with God. In a very real and honest and transparent way, God isn't exactly how I'd want him to be today. God isn't doing some of the things I want him to do. He's not looking, I'm confused, I'm looking at him going, is that you? Do you do things like that? How do we cross this threshold of disappointment and become transformed by it, not embittered by it, not blinded by it, but transformed by it? This is the goal, this is the objective that Jesus has for us. So I just wanna speak to this for a second, a few thoughts for you. And this first one I've said to you probably 967 times. So get ready, we're gonna do it again. (laughs) Be honest. How do we confront this? How do we become transformed by this very real disappointment that's in our life? We get honest. Now, it's not easy to say, I wish it was different about me, but it's not. When I'm frustrated at God, when I'm disappointed with God, it's a no-go for me. Anybody else? Into his presence. No, sir. We're done, right? I'm one of those fighters. It's not good. It's not healthy. I'm working with, well, I will be working with a therapist on it coming soon to a person near you. That's gonna happen. Um, We're going deeper. Okay, more content for the years to come. Uh, But I don't do that well. You know, it's easy for me to say, be honest with God, y'all. Go ahead, get honest with God. Tell him how you feel. But my goodness, when people say that to me, I'm like, how? I don't move that way. You know, when I'm in a fight with you, I don't wanna be close to you, you know? The invitation here is to do more than just go like, okay, God, well, let me tell you how you disappointed me. It's about you moving yourself, your whole person into the presence of God and waiting till he speaks, by the way, the scriptures say a better word than what you've heard. To move yourself in a position of honesty. God, I'm being honest about my disappointment, about my expectations before you, about what I was hoping for you to do, and you have to, I can't see any other way that you do this, you have to move through the pain of that in order to be honest with him. It's costly to do this as a disciple of Jesus, but it's necessary. Getting honest with God is telling him not only what you want him to do, but how you're impacted by how he does it. I um, I think I've spoken from the pulpit about this at some point, but um, you know, I view my relationship to God very covenantal because by the way, it is, right? You're in it. It's like a marriage. It's, it's for life. We're in this thing. So I feel a lot of freedom to get mad at him and not say much for a while because we're not going anywhere. You know, I get home and there he is on the couch, you know? <laughs> hey, babe, okay. You know, like, and I, I feel okay about that. But that, that picture, that union that we have It's also the place where I have to learn, just like you do with your spouse and with other people in your life, to be honest with him, to not move away from him, but to move towards him. I don't know why we don't treat God like he's a person, but this is the invitation here. It's it's if I went out with my friends and there was something between me and them, something that had happened, a disappointment or a pain point or whatever people politically call it now, you hurt my feelings is how I would say it. If that's happening, I don't wanna share margaritas with you. Well, okay. It depends on where we are in the city. You know what I'm saying? Just some places. With God, the same thing is true. To be honest with him is to tell him how we feel. And in the words of Gary Brashear is to do it as a lament, not a whiny episode. Okay, Gary, we receive your word. (laughs) Ann Voskamp calls this kind of communication with God lament because she says it is a cry of belief in a good God a God who has ears to hear our hearts. She goes on to say that this kind of lament is one that trusts perfect love enough to feel and cry authentically. The invitation in disappointment is to tell God the truth, to come to him with all the things that feel hard and painful and unjust and confusing. And it's only then And only from that space of honesty that we can actually hear him speaking over us and not just speaking over us, but showing us his greater good. He can handle addressing the disappointment in your heart. The act of faith, the act of worship is to move yourself in such a way in a position in which you can receive that. 
Get open with God. Tell him how you feel and allow him and trust him to lead you to goodness despite your pain. Next, I would say become like a child. Some of you are like, weird. Yes, weird. But uh, I'm doing a little alliteration, three Bs tonight. Anybody into that? Yeah, JMC's gone for the weekend, so I'm going to play hard. Uh, This spiritual journey is a weird one. Would anyone else agree? It's so weird. Um, Because as we mature in our faith, we actually become more like children. That's the invitation. It's sort of like that weird Benjamin Button movie. Anybody else freaked out by that? Oh, Lee, we got to the end. I was like, absolutely not. I don't know what's happening, but it's very scary. Why is she holding her boyfriend like that? It's like a baby. I don't even remember exactly what's happening. I was so freaked out by that. Anyway, that's like the kingdom of God. Um, so someone tweet that out. But it's kind of like that. When you think of our spiritual journey with Jesus, the invitation over and over and over again in the gospels is to become like a child. It's easier for them. They are open and curious. They believe the best. They are innocent and trusting and expecting. This is our invitation as we mature in Jesus. It is to grow more and more in our understanding that we are God's child. And that I believe at least means two things. First, it means that you get the care and the love and the attention a child gets. You get the affection and the delight that children feel as their parents watch them and learn them and hope for them. Do you know what it's like when a newborn baby comes into the room? Some of you are like, I'm scared of them. Yeah, they're a little squishy and bendy. They're very bendy at that age. Um, But man, when I see a newborn come into the room, and we've had some, this has been a season of procreation uh, for our church in a massive way. Um, And so they start emerging, you know, as we start to regather. There's been so much of that. And there's all these smushy little humans. And in particular, one of our um, video guys I love, he and his wife, Evan and Lisa, they're so amazing. They had this beautiful little baby named Emma. And when she got born, I was like, that's it. I don't care about anybody else, only Emma. And when Emma comes into the room, when she came to the room, she was a real little, little bitty. Um, and when I saw her for the first time, I just was like, Emma, just feel this love for you, this affection for you. I look at her and I was thinking about all the things that God was gonna do and what he was speaking over her life and how angels watched over her as she slept. And I just, every time I see Emma coming into the room, even this morning after I preached, uh, her dad came in and said, here's 16 pictures of Emma this morning, you know? And I was like, yeah, I'm into Emma. She's the best guy I know, girl, I know. Uh, anyways, she's awesome. And I feel this immense delight, and this person's not even of my flesh. God sees us this way. We just miss it. To become a child is to also accept that God woos and freaks out over you. Like, look, he drove the car. Okay, (laughs) yes. Like, weird. I know it's so cheesy and like churchy to have someone be like, especially the pastor, like, God loves you all the way, you know, he's proud of you or whatever. Anyway, that was my context where I grew up. It's like, okay. But I mean it, like, like sometimes I have to think about the fact that God was standing over my bed waiting for me to wake up in the morning. He's just looking at me like, oh God, I can't wait till she gets up, which is like unfathomable. So I've got my like retainer in and the whole bit. <laughs> you need to wear your retainer. It's expensive. God delights in you. This is the gift of being a child, is knowing and believing that God is after you. This is what it means to become childlike. Now, this this next part of it is really important because um, being a child also means that you are dependent on him for all the things, not just some of the things or the provisional things or the marginal things, but that you are dependent upon him for all of the things. And this is necessary, particularly in a place where we feel this kind of disappointment as we grow in our faith, as we mature and believe even more and more that we are children of the kingdom of God, we can hold at the same time in our disappointment this belief that God is after me. The lie of the enemy that comes for most of us in this space is that God is against us when disappointment comes. He doesn't care. Mine, my lie is God's forgotten about you, Bethany. He likes to come in hot with that one. Anybody else? God doesn't care. You're just his little object. That he moves around. This is what the enemy says to us in this place. The discipline of the disciple is to remember, I am God's child. He has not forsaken me. In fact, the scriptures say he withholds nothing good from those that he loves. 
nothing, which means that his, his disposition towards me is perfect and loving. Becoming like children means that we get to believe God like we would if we had perfect parents. Some of you are close, but not quite. But if we had perfect parents, we could believe him for his provision, his protection, for his ability, hear me, to see things we cannot see, to know things about ourselves we don't yet know, and then at the same time to trust that he is perfect and unwavering in his love towards us. This is what it means to become like a child. The more we grow in maturity, the more we become more um, wise in understanding how he sees us and how he cares for us, the greater, uh, the more free we become to let him lead in whatever capacity he's leading and to say he's a good parent, so he's up to something. Children look for the good things. My niece delights in like shoelaces, like it's out of control, you know? Sometimes I'm like, this is a weird thing to like, but okay, a bottle cap, you know? She's like, wow, this is a spaceship, you know? And I'm like, no, um, but, but it's cool, right? This is, this is what it's like to become like a child. It's trusting that everything that's even weird or you're not sure about or you're wondering if God is actually gonna be faithful to is being taken care of because he's a good dad. Finally, believe that he is better. Now, I want to say what I mean here, and this is more of like a washing over you thing. I think as um, disciples of Jesus, we have to move in places of maturity, and this is one of those places. The, the idea here of believing that God is better is disciplining ourselves and letting ourselves even experience and think about and meditate on the knowledge of the realities of the kingdom, of the ways that it's true that dead things are raised to life that wounds uh, usher in new destinies as they're healed, that people are delivered from the de demonic, that slaves are made free. These are the realities we've seen, not only in these gospels, but in our lives. So there is something to it for us to actually believe that God is better. It's so weird, it's so vile that the enemy does this, but when we feel disappointed by God, so often the enemy comes in and he erases from your mind everything God has been faithful to do for you. We forget, it's like amnesia. We're like, what, God doesn't even what? You know, like it's such a weird moment. But there is something to us where not just even within ourselves, but from our community, we need to hear that God is better than you imagine him to be. This week, I had to hold to that. I had to have my community who I've spoken this out for a thousand times over say to me, he is better than what you're believing him to be. He is more faithful than you're trusting him for. And God just started interrupting my life in an obnoxious way this week and going, I'm better. And I'm like, okay, God, you're so loud. Like, and I'm doing something and I'm after good in you and it feels like discipline and it feels painful and it feels like I'm coming for these deeper bits of you and I am because I'm jealous for you. But I am better than you imagined me to be, which includes your own correction, which includes God coming after the things that are stealing from the greater glory God needs and deserves and is worthy of. This is that thing that's happening to us to believe God is better, is to by faith say to him, no matter what comes, you are who you said you were. I think about Thomas as he sticks his hands in Jesus's wounds, which I'm good with. And he goes, hey, look, you are him. We need moments like this over and over again. We need to let the knowledge of the fact that he has been in the past and will be in the future better than we expect him to be wash over us. It is a choice we have to make as disciples, but it is one worth making. Our job as apprentices of Jesus isn't to wait for faith to come to us, but to be cultivators of it in our own life and in the lives of the people around us. Even in our text, I love that God didn't just save Israel from Rome. He saved the people of Rome too. He gave everyone a chance to enter his kingdom. He is better than our expectations. His plan for us is good and it's wider than we can imagine. We have to be people who look for God's in-breaking kingdom and his breaking goodness to us. 
One of my mentors recently challenged, and by challenged, I mean pretty blatantly rebuked me. <laughs> That's polite. She challenged me. That's Christian speak for like... Uh, she challenged me by simply saying, if you give your attention to the brokenness of something, you will see it everywhere. But if you look for the light, the goodness of God's presence, his movement, his working, his faithfulness, you too will see it everywhere. We have reasons, friends, to believe that he is not only who he said he was, but that he would be better than we hoped him to be. The call for us is to take him at his word. Now, before we end, I want to ask just one final question. It's something for us to consider. I went back and forth on this. I don't know if it's going to sound silly to you, but I want to offer it up to you as a sister, a sibling, and all of this. I think it's important. I think we need to ask, how do we get better at this? How do we live lives with less disappointment? Wouldn't you like that? Yeah. I mean, some people like to be cranky. I don't prefer it. It's a different energy, you know? I'm not like, oh, I'm so delighted in you. You did so great today. Cranky, biting people's heads off, screaming at people in the car. I would never do that, but let's just say. Disappointment, as I've made the point tonight, is inevitable in our humanity. But moving through it, even, I think, interrupting it or the cycle of it, which is possible, has the power to shape how we experience God moving forward. It can become, I believe, a threshold for greater faith and more of the power and the presence of God in our lives. Disappointment dissipates within us as we learn to see as God sees, which is something we have to do over and over again. When we learn to trust what he is after, when we take him at his word, when he says, I am after all the good in your life. When we learn to trust his answers to us as sufficient and exceedingly and abundantly beyond what we could have asked or imagined. Our ability to live life with less disappointment is one that more and more centers around God's reality as opposed to ours. And that's the invitation for us today to believe that it is far better than we imagined. Now, I could say a lot about, a lot more about disappointment. You're like, you have settled quite a bit. <laughs> Are you watching the clock? No. And yes. <laughs> I could recount the year, 2020, 2021. Can we add that to the list yet? Is that on there yet? <laughs> um, and talk about all the disappointment we felt and ways that we just, our whole lives got messed up. But I, I don't want to do that. I don't want to emphasize the dark things. So I just want to say this as just a, a confession and maybe an encouragement to you. Um, for years, I, um, I struggled a lot with this idea of disappointment, of misplaced expectations on God in my faith journey. And here's the gift. Um, I actually think I have what Paul calls the gift of faith, which is cool. So like, if you were like, what does that mean? I, uh, it means I'm like, if, if, if in this moment God wanted to put $20 in your pocket, he's going to. And some of you are checking. Maybe he will. I don't know. Or if you needed something, you needed your leg to grow back, I believe God could do it right now. I have a lot of faith for that. Or if God's manifest presence wanted to pour into this place through smoke and the clouds, I believe God could do that here and now. I have this thing in me that says, yes, God wants to do it. Even when I was little, my mom was like, it's annoying. You have this ability to go like, yeah, let's get that house, you know, or whatever. And she was like, no, <laughs> um, or whatever. And, and sometimes cultivating that and a lot of times not doing that. Um, all that to say, I have this great gift of faith, I think is from God, for the glory of God, for the kingdom of God. But in my 20s especially, I had poor, immature character to hold that intention with the work that I was doing. So, um, so in my 20s, a lot, I was like, okay, God, faith for this thing. Here we go. You got it, baby. All my faith. You got it. So he'd come in hot. We'd be building faith. I'd be going, okay, God, I'm asking you for this thing. This is the way I want to see you do it. This is how we want you to move. And then it wouldn't happen. And I'd be disappointed. But then I'd be like, it's okay, dude. Just strike one. No problem. <laughs> Little audacity there. But anyway, growing in my faith. Happen again, God, here's this big thing. I believe you for it. I've seen you. I've heard you. I believe, God, you're able to do that. 
And it just didn't happen the way that I thought it would, and it was really disappointing. That happened a few more times. And finally, in all my maturity and wisdom and pastoral leadership, get into a place with God and say, uh, God, I wanna tell you how you've destroyed my faith in you. That's not mature, by the way. That's silly. Saying it out loud is a weird confession. But I got to this place where whether... I was able to articulate it this well or not. I was feeling like God had destroyed my faith because of how unfaithful he had been. So I was going, as a pastor, how does that work? I gotta believe you for these things, but you've been quite disappointing. Remember this? You know what I mean? Anyway, it's weird. So I, I did that, and, and as I was doing that, as I was accusing God, which is what that is, or trying to hold him accountable, and some um, prideful, sinful, way. God interrupted me because he's merciful. And he just said, hey, I just want to show you what I've been doing. And all of a sudden, I had these floods of memories of the ways that I had petitioned God and how he had actually responded. I let my pain inflate, and my vision became very small for who God was. But as he came and attended to the pain, I was able to see how God answered my prayers, how I didn't end up in that abusive relationship that I was asking God to be in. How God did the thing for my friend that I did not actually know if it was possible and did it in an exceedingly and abundant way that I hadn't even thought of. And over and over again, these images started flooding my mind. And this was a turning point for me. God is better than we expect him to be. And I wept <laughs> and still weep. I wept this morning because he is better. Our pain keeps us from the truth of who he is, but he is after goodness in your life. And I have no idea, I mean no idea, where this intersects with you, how you're viewing God, how you're not viewing him, if you feel disappointed or if you don't feel disappointed. But my hope is tonight you'll get a truer vision of Jesus. The best thing I can offer to you tonight is, is a declaration of who he really is that brings life to us as we hear those things. Disappointment with God has gotten easier because I've learned, like these beautiful sage people who we know are prayer warriors in our houses, I listen to them pray, I'm like, what are they praying? What am I, you know, like I'm still like learning. But so much of these people who've prayed for years and years and years and years, I never hear them go like, and God specifically this on this timeline or in this way. I just hear from them this beautiful echo of, God, your will be done. And more of you, more of you. You lead us. You show us. You keep us in step with your spirit. This is the outcome is that we would become so detached from our expectations of the outcome that we would experience more of the kingdom of God, more of the delight of God's presence, and more of his goodness to us.